0: Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, y'all. So we're in a sermon series called A Church After God's Own Heart. And we'll see in this passage that a church after God's own heart is a church that confesses sin. If you are walking in feeling a little bit of distance between you and God, if you feel like there's an obstacle between you and God, it may be because of unconfessed sin and unrepentant sin. It just may be. I can testify of this two months ago. And I'm one of your pastors. I have felt out of step with God's spirit, didn't feel his pleasure or his presence. And that's even more of a dangerous situation that much more because I'm a part of overseeing this local church. But then something happened in my life that totally changed the trajectory of my days. I felt the joy of God again. And it was because I finally confessed ongoing sin to God and I finally repented of it. And that has been the biggest game changer. I've been flooded with the pleasures of God that much more ever since then. And I would guess that God would want to do that same thing in your life here today, if you're in that condition or in future situations that you're in and it's getting rid of sin and confessing it is not just for your good, but it is for God's sake as well. Uh, Pastor, John Piper, in a paraphrase, he says this, God is most seen in us when we are most satisfied in him. Today's message is a prayer from King David. We're gonna see in the text and we've read just how agonizing he is taking his sin between him and God. And it's going to shape exactly what it looks like to honor God with our ongoing sin. And it's gonna come by way of repentance And that's going to come before then, this godly sorrow and being bothered by it. We're going to see seven different ways that the text points out that it is, there are certain things that would honor God in how we approach bringing sin to him. And in our approach, it'll change the realities of what we're experiencing. Let's get into the text. Verse three, David writing here, and by the way, all of this he's writing after he has sinned against uh, Uriah, the Hittite, who was a soldier of his, he sleeps with Uriah's bride, and then he sends Uriah to be killed by sending him to battle at the front lines. So that's the context in which he's writing this. That's the sin that he's envisioning right now. So let's enter into it, verse three. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. The first step of addressing our ongoing sin is to recognize it. It's, it's not to push it to the side, it's to recognize it. And King David here uses three different words for sin or transgression. And it means that he crosses the line. It means that he misses God's mark. And it means that what he's doing is perverse. And what happens any time that we break God's law, we are breaching his moral commands. And all those things are true of us still. Every time that we lie, we talk to our spouses unwholesomely. Every time that we have lustful thoughts. And you know what sticks out to me about King David in this lament, in his confessed sin, in this prayer? What sticks out to me is that he owns it. Check it out. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. David acknowledges that he not only has a sin condition, but that he actually will not make an excuse for his ongoing sin. Look with me. Keep tracking along as we make progress through this text. Here's how he doesn't make an excuse. But you desire honesty, O oh God, from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. He doesn't sin and then say, well, God, you know I'm a sinner. You know I can't help myself, God. I was born a sinner. A sinner's going to sin. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't look at God and say, yeah, but did you see Bathsheba? Did you see how good looking she was? Could I have helped myself? Did you not give me these carnal desires? What was she doing out there, by the way, bathing at that time of day? Was she not asking to be peered upon? would, Would other men not do the same thing? He doesn't go through any of those excuses. Instead, you look at the text, he acknowledges his sin. And then he preaches to himself that God desires obedience despite our temptations because there's a lot of them out there. Despite our enemies, and as Rick Ross says, we got enemies, got a lot of enemies. Despite all those temptations, God desires obedience. He's given and empowered you by his spirit to walk by his spirit. And when we do so, we experience life. So when you want to Christian cuss someone out, right, whatever that may mean in your life, God wants to remind you that God does not desire for out of your mouth to come both blessing and cursing. When you are entertaining impure thoughts and you are looking towards a path that would take you away from everything godly and that would put you on a path towards destruction, God is saying, take thought every captive. Take captive every thought and place it under his obedience. And David not only recognizes his sin, but check this out, it actually bothers him. You may say, oh, that's obvious. It's rare, it's rare. Check it out with me. For I recognize my sin, it haunts me day and night. He sins and his sins bother him so much that he says that it haunts him day and night. Him missing the mark, him breaking God's moral law, him breaching that code is bothering him day and night. My question is, what does it take for us to actually do something? How much does it actually have to bother us in which we would actually address our sin and take it to God? Interesting. The text brings it up, King David verse 17. The sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. We will be willing to bring our sins to God when our heart is broken over them. When we have a broken and contrite spirit over our sin. And that only happens, listen church, there's no other method. You don't look laterally and compare yourself to make yourself feel worse compared to someone else's sin, your neighbor's sin. The only way we will be bothered enough is if we see and if we feel that our sin is against God and God only, that we see the primary person that we are offending is God himself. Look with me in the text, verse four. Against you, David says, you only with him journaling God, have I sinned. David's heart is torn up because he feels the weight of how he's offended God. And you know what's crazy? When I first read this, I was like, this brother slept with Uriah's bride. And then he sent him out to be killed. And this dude has the audacity to say that he's only sinned against God. Blew my mind. And guess what? Objectively, what he said was not true. David, King David, had sinned against uh, Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba, their family, his own family, uh, David's kingdom, of which he was to reign and rule over in godliness. It wasn't just God. So how can he say In this text, I have sinned against you and you alone because he understood that sinning against others is first a breach of God's moral law. Sinning against others is first a breach against God's moral law. God's given us his commands in his word. He's also put eternity in the hearts of men. If you've never read the Bible, there is a moral consciousness written on your heart in which you know right and wrong. And it may vary in different cultures, but God has said we know right and wrong, and especially if you're a Christian, we know his his commands, and they're intended for us to experience life. So every time that we take God's name in vain, every time that we use his name as a substitute cuss word, every time that we lie or we're dishonest in white lies, every time we are breaking God's moral law and we're doing it at the heart level first, We're doing it at the heart level first. In David's case, before he sleeps with Bathsheba and commits adultery, he peers and he looks and he has lust for her in his heart. In his heart on a deeper level. In other words, with God being our father, if you are a born again son and daughter of Christ, with God being our father, he takes our sin against other people personally. He takes our sin against your spouse. He takes our sin against your neighbor personally. And moreover, David realized that God was there. He had seen everything. He had noticed in that room that, God was that David was committing adultery. God was not absent when David gave the command for Uriah to be killed. Charles Spurgeon, an English preacher from the 1800s, writes this about God's eyes seeing everything. David felt that his sin was committed in all of its filthiness while Jehovah himself looked on. None but a child of God cares for the eye of God. Church, your God is watching us when we sin. The God who saved you and ransomed you, who took you out of the muck and mire, took you out of the dominion of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of his beloved son, Sees us when we sin that's the reality and david understood this and it brought him godly sorrow in church if we want to experience long-lasting repentance change and it's god honoring in our life if we want to remove obstacles from our life it has to be first felt with a godly sorrow over our sins look with me look with me this is the apostle paul we're jumping to the new covenant godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death paul is describing two contrasting type of sorrows the first one is a worldly sorrow it's it's feeling bad because you either got caught or because you offended someone and you feel bad that they feel bad it's all horizontally based Godly sorrow takes into account who God is, his grace on your life and his design with people being image bearers of him. True long lasting repentance comes from godly sorrow. I've seen this in my life. One of the pestering sins in my life is my selfishness in my marriage. And Danny and I, we do proactive counseling. so. Every month I'm reminded that uh, my selfishness plays itself out with the way I spend my time. I will tell my bride, and I'm, I'm not happy about this, that I will return at a certain time. This time is important because Danny has a lot of, ki- of our kids that she's watching. And she needs to do things. And w- when I return, I don't return on time. And that happens constantly. So I've seen her get frustrated and her melt me, and me and her lose trust in me. And I felt terrible because I'm hurting her feelings. And guess what? That never produced lasting fruit of repentance. It was all godly sorrow. Yes, I felt bad, but I never felt bad about the core issue, my selfishness. Never felt bad about it until, praise God, until one moment God gave me his sorrow. Sitting down, he just by his spirit gave me thoughts and he spoke to me and he said, do you remember on the college campus when I saved you and you would beg to me while walking to class at night for me to provide a bride for you? And right then I knew, God, I'm letting you down. He reminded me not just of his provision, but I've been called in scripture to sacrificially lay my, down, lay my life down for my bride. And in that moment, he reminded me I was selfish with my time, not selfless. So how could I lead him? And in that moment, I got God's sorrow for how I was missing the mark, how I was crossing the line of his moral code, and it brought about true repentance and lasting fruit of change. Lasting fruit of change. Godly sorrow is an understanding that our sin offends God and him primarily. And it's a revelation that makes us feel the weight of offending God. My concern for this church is that we never get acquainted with godly sorrow. Maybe at true repentance, but we continue from there on hurting people, hurting ourselves, and we do quick fixes. We end up going with worldly sorrow just to handle the situation relationally so you can move on because it's easier. Instead of going with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is way more difficult, y'all. It takes time. Just like any other relationship, God, would you help me feel? This is a relationship between me and you, Father. Help me feel my sin against these people. Worldly sorrow is quick and unhealthy, like picking up fast food, while godly sorrow is better and may take a while, like a home-cooked meal. So much better is godly sorrow if we would wait and ask God, for it. Church, let's not settle for quick fixes, shallow repentance, shallow, not long-lasting fruit. Let's actually lean in to feeling the weight of sinning against God. And the side note, this psalm is so popular since it's been written. I've heard it preached on. You may hear, hear it on your Christian radio even after this. You may have heard it beforehand. And I think this psalm never becomes popular if he goes with worldly sorrow for real who wants to hear his worldly sorrow God I'm sorry that I did this to Uriah God I'm sorry that I did this to Bathsheba no one wants to hear those things we're familiar with those things that's shallow people want to hear realness the depths of conviction that a soul feels when we truly have to handle sin with God and that's godly sorrow felt from David in Psalm 51. And that's what's necessary for true repentance. Let's not be a church that is okay with shallowness. Let's be a church that seeks God so that he would sharpen us and make us men and women who he desires us to be. And it would be a disservice, just like last week, if I would not hand off a habit to you that has kept me um, in short accounts with God, which has meant that I have felt his presence more often than I should have because of keeping um short accounts with him so that would be praying the scriptures again and instead of thanksgiving like last week this week and in which you can mix this up it's praying the scriptures and when your heart is grieved you stop for how you have not met God's standard and you start asking for godly sorrow or if you have it to repent of that sin and it will keep you clean from God so Just turning to anywhere like last week in the Bible and reading on, you can end up finding a passage in Scripture where you can find some grief. Let me model it to you. This would be Galatians 5 verse 1. So Christ has truly set us free. Well, here we go. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Oh God, how I have found delight in doing, 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 and fearing others and pleasing others more than I have in pleasing you. All of those things I was familiar with before I came to you, Jesus, and now they have enslaved me so that what people think of me matters more than what what you think of me. God, please forgive me. I'm asking you. You've told me in your word that if I seek you for freedom, you will set me free. You just go through in scripture and where the Holy Spirit convicts you, you stop, you pray. And after that, you just continue on in the scriptures and you pray again. This is a proactive model of keeping clean, of keeping, short, of keeping short accounts between you, God, and others. It's allowing God's voice through his scriptures to dictate what we truly need to confess of. Because there are some ongoing sins in our life, y'all, that we don't even know about. And there will be beautiful times in which the Holy Spirit brings up this word, puts it in your face, and makes you see it. And at that time, you will have an option to harden your heart or not. Let's get back into the text. David shows us even more motivation for why we should confess sin. Look with me. Verse 11. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David understands that there are consequences to our unconfessed sin. And in this moment, David sees contextually that his predecessor, King Saul, he had experienced torment because of unrepented sin. And he's looking at his sin and seeing how God removed his hand of favor over Saul. And he's saying, God, please don't do this to me. Don't take away your presence. Church, each one of us has a ministry. It's where we have influence of godliness over other people. And it is a mantle each one of us has been predestined to have before the foundations of the world. And here's the thing. It may be that you're intended to be a godly parent, a praying grandparent, It may be an apostle, a teacher, a prophet, an evangelist, whatever your ministry may be. And by the way, church, we better look for it because we will never be fulfilled in this life if we do not look for how God's created us to serve one another. Okay, that's a side note. And we need to go back and say, God, how have you gifted me? And we need to recognize this. Once we recognize how God has blessed us and what ministry we have, We need to see what David has seen, that if we want to experience effectiveness and if we want to enjoy our ministry, if you want to enjoy parenting, if you want to enjoy teaching, if you want to last long in both of those areas, then we need to repent sin. Having unconfessed sin in our life is a massive block, even in our ministry, being effective and enjoying God as we do for him. You see, the Holy Spirit gives each one of us an anointing for the task at hand. That's what's key. And his hand will move away from covering us in our ministries because of unrepentant sin. And when David realized that, he realized that he needed to beg God for his favor, undeservedly so again. And why is this? Is because unrepentant sin causes distance between us and God. Remember, this is a relationship with God the Father. And every time that we sin, we breach his moral law. We are creating distance and we are placing selfishness and pride and ego and sin in between us. And it does not allow us to feel the presence of God. Specifically, it does not allow us to experience joy. Look with me last year. Verse 8. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me, now let me rejoice. David recognizes that his unconfessed sin is robbing him of joy. And David, he understood the value of joy because he realized that his joy was going to be his gasoline and it was going to fuel his obedience. Check it out, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Whoo, that's powerful. Make me willing. He won't force you, church. God will make us willing to obey him. Joy is the greatest reason why I continue to kill sin and follow Jesus. One of your pastors is saying this right now. The reason why I continue to follow Jesus after 10 years of hardship, highs, lows, mountain valleys, is because of joy. Because once you have experienced joy in the presence of God, you don't want to live without it. It is the sweetest fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's addicting because this world is difficult. But praise God, Jesus has overcome it. And in it, when we are obedient to God and we are clean before him, we will experience joy everlasting in his presence. So when we're disobedient, it's interesting how God has designed things. When we're disobedient, the joy leaves. And what happens is there's a void there a fruit that was so sweet before And then he uses by his spirit the lack of joy to draw us, to come back to him, to chase after him, to stay hot on his heels. Because we are addicts in the best way possible. Church, the lack of joy in our life is a godly motive to repent, confess, and believe again. John Piper, pastor again here, he calls it Christian hedonism. (laughs) Christian hedonism. And it honors God. Because there's only one way in which a person experiences true joy that's worthwhile, and that's by staying connected to him. Do you see it? It's by staying connected to him. We're not chasing feelings. We're actually pursuing him, and the feelings will come after. For my non-Christian friend, this is the Christian life. This is what I signed up for, and every person who experienced godly sorrow, we've repented and believed. And what we've inherited is an amazing conversation we can have with God. That in our difficult moments, in the times where our sins are stacked so full, it's coming out of both ears, we can go back to God's mercy. And we can call on his name. And we can ask him for forgiveness. Because he is kind, he is gentle, and he is lowly. And he's humble at heart. The beginning of this psalm, I wish I had it on me, but I lost my place starts off with king david asking for mercy unfailing love and compassion why because he is unfailing in love he's merciful and he's compassionate someone in the church give me an amen Amen. and he will not turn you away if if you want this conversation it has to come with initial repentance it is genuinely experiencing a godly sorrow for sinning against god primarily and then my non-christian friend it's confessing that that you have thought running your life was better than your creator's running your life. And then it's turning, which means repent. And it is bowing your knee and asking God to enthrone your heart, that he would forgive you and that you would allow him to run your life. And in that moment, you will experience joy everlasting that is priceless. Absolutely priceless. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit and your touch now. For the church right now. Help us do business with you as these songs go by. That we would take account of whether we've stood far from you because of our sin. Would you convict our hearts of it? And God, would you bring my non-Christian friend in the room of whom I once was into saving faith? In Jesus' name.